Good morning. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 62 from verses 10 to 12. That's on the church Bible, page 725. And this is the word of the Lord. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, see your savior comes, see his rewards is with them, and his recompense accompanies them. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called so after the city no longer deserted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to your throne this morning, and we want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to be called your sons and daughters, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that all in your kingdom, from all tribes and nations and languages, Lord, we are all united under one kingdom, and that you are the king, Lord, and we are all brothers and sisters. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that we will remember your faithfulness, your suffering on the cross, Lord, and that we will hold on to this promise that you have given, Lord. And we will pray that our children will hold on to this promise, Lord. Lord, I pray that you strengthen us, Lord, to fight, Lord, the destruction around us. Lord, we pray and we want to proclaim your name, your kingdom, your kingship, that you're king over Afghanistan, you're king over Canada, and you rule over the world, Lord. The world that's full of chaos and, and, and uh, injustice, Lord. That in your kingdom there is perfect justice, that you are the just and righteous God. And, but at the same time, you are the gracious and loving God that we can hold on and trust your grace and be saved, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we hold on to this promise. Our children will hold on to this promise, Lord. As man and woman, Lord, here today, Lord, that we will be encouraged by Pastor Uri's preaching, Lord, and we will be strengthened, Lord. As we walk out of this, Lord, that we will be ambassadors of Christ. We will be carrying your message. We will be carrying your, your, your word, Lord, to the people that still need to hear, Lord and that who will need to trust your grace, Lord. And we want to lift up this, Lord. We pray that you, you bless, Lord, Bethesda Church. Bless, Lord, the elders, the leadership, the members, Lord. Lord, we thank you for, for uh, the preaching of your word here, for the ministry that's happening here. Pray, Lord, that you strengthen them, Lord. Lord, we pray that you strengthen, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that, that this, this will go, Lord. Your name will be preached forever and ever in this land, Lord, and this church, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you raise man and woman, Lord, to come in the next generation and the generations after, Lord. We praise you for this fellowship. We praise you for this congregation. And we praise you, Lord, for the worship and the proclamation of your word that happens here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Luke. Can everybody hear me okay? Sometimes we have a little bit of trouble with all the fans going. I'll try to speak clearly and slowly enough and loudly enough into the mic. For the next two Sundays, we're going to return to the book of Isaiah. 
We're going to return to the passage that we were studying in the month of June before we broke off to spend a few weeks in Romans 8. You might remember that we were in chapters 60 and 61 of Isaiah. And now, as you heard in our brother Luke's reading, we're going to skip to the final three verses of chapter 62, which is the climax of this pivotal section, which, which sum it all up. These three verses kind of sum up all of these three incredible chapters. You may remember that these chapters are all about Zion. These chapters are all about Zion. And in case you've forgotten, what we said about Zion is that it is more than just the ancient capital of King David. Zion is more even than a symbol or an idea. Zion is reality. Zion is a spiritual reality, to be sure. But Christians know that the spiritual world is no less real than the physical one. The Bible teaches us that to ignore spiritual realities is at least as dangerous as to ignore physical realities like gravity, for instance. Zion is the city of the living God. Zion is the place where the son of David, Jesus, reigns for all eternity. Jesus reigns in Zion over those who have been called at all times and places. Zion is the gathering of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, the book of Hebrews tells us. Zion is the place where we find the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Jesus reigns in Zion over all these and over thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That is reality. Zion is now. And Zion is forever. Zion is here. And Zion transcends space. And to the extent that we live in Christ, we live in Zion. At first I was drawn back to this passage because of all of the, the traveling images, right? Which seemed kind of appropriate to our new arrivals who traveled around the world and who are celebrating today. We read in these verses about the preparing, the highways, the gates, and so on. But as I've been looking back through old email updates from Kadir and Najila, and listening again to the podcast on the Gospel Coalition that tells the story of Luke and Sarah, I was remembering all the dramatic details and the inspiring activities that they have been engaged in over the past number of years. And I became even more convinced that these few verses at the end of Isaiah 62 were what God was calling me to preach on today. Our new friends have much to teach us. Because, as I said earlier, no matter where in the world God has led them, 
No matter what they have faced, they have lifted high the name of Jesus. They have shared him with their families, with their friends, and whoever else God has brought to them. They've shared him as often as they could, regardless of the danger, regardless of the inconvenience that resulted from it. And while it may not be immediately obvious, that is exactly what these verses are about. Sharing the gospel no matter the cost. Preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, confident that he is our only message. Depending on Jesus Christ and him crucified, discerning that he is the only proven method Seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified, knowing that he is the only worthwhile reason for living. Staking our lives on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Risking that he is the only reward worth having. Our focus today will be on that reward To help us see that our motivation for living the gospel, for sharing the gospel, whatever the cost, is to have more of him, more of our Savior. Have you ever thought about the fact that the best, the most compelling motivation for evangelism is that warm feeling of God's pleasure that comes over you as you testify to the goodness of God and to the beauty of Jesus Christ? That the reason you could be willing to sacrifice yourself him is, for him is actually a selfish one. Because you simply want to possess more and more of Jesus. That you can say without a hint of shame or embarrassment that you seek his reward because his reward is with him. So today, we will look especially at verses 11, or sorry, 10 and 11, to the sheer delight that comes as we hold Jesus aloft. The joy we feel at being the bearer of good news. And this is in keeping with today's theme, a celebration of God's goodness and faithfulness. But I'm also hoping to challenge you, especially if you're sitting there and thinking what I was just saying sounds a little bit crazy, that really you're not so sure that you want more of it, more of him, if what this means is more inconvenience, more difficulty, more pain in your life. Well, next week we'll get a little more into the nuts and bolts of evangelism. But looking at it through the lens of this kind of gleeful motivation that we're talking about today, and also in the fulfillment that we find in verse 12. We won't talk much about verse 12 today. We'll touch a little bit on verse 11, and we'll talk more 11 and 12 next week. And next week, we'll also examine some of the specific challenges that we're facing here in North America. Of course, 
Many of the challenges that our friends have faced already in another part of the world are obvious, but in our parts of the world you will face different kinds of challenges. So next week we're going to talk about those challenges. We will frame them with some alarming statistics that tell the story of faith decline, especially in our younger generations. We're going to look at what our approach has been in North America these past 50 to 75 years. We're going to look at how these strategies have largely failed and how we can do better by God's grace. Indeed, how we must do better if we want to actually pursue God's grace for our children and for our young people. But you'll have to come back next week to hear more on that. The last 11 chapters of Isaiah depict our fallen world. A world in which truth has stumbled in the public squares. That is a world where no one can tell what the truth is, let alone act on it. This is a vision given after the vision of redemption found through the suffering servant in chapter 53. The surprise of it is that even so, even after that redemption that we read about a few chapters earlier, we still find ourselves in a world filled with darkness, a world marred by corruption and violence. It's a world in which even the people of God question their hope, a world in which even they are unable to do the things that God has called them to, to keep justice and to do righteousness. Into that mess, into that futility, God steps. And you can read about that in chapter 59. I'm not going to take the time to read this passage right now. But as the anointed conqueror, arming himself for his own purposes, for his own glory, he redeems Zion, the city of David that had become rotten to the core, which he so damagingly describes in chapter 1, that is Isaiah. The anointed conqueror redeems, reimagines, recreates this fallen, historical, physical capital city of Israel, which, as far as human eyes can see, never managed to retain or regain its fabled purity. And he makes it into the image of the elect Zion, the perfect, the eternal, the spiritual city of God to which all nations are invited, to which all peoples come. And here in chapters 60 to 62, Isaiah braids together the various strands of his gospel that he's been developing through the whole book. The promise of the Prince of Peace that we find in chapter 9. The sacrifice of the suffering servant that we find in chapter 53. And now the victory of the anointed conqueror. Isaiah braids all these voices together to speak as one. It is the voice of the Messiah, 
Jesus. This is why Jesus claimed the words we found at the beginning of chapter 61 for himself at the very beginning of his ministry, which we read about in Luke chapter 4. So I'm going to do something very bold today, at least bold for a theologian and a preacher, and assert that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one urging on Zion's citizens here in our passage at the end of Isaiah chapter 62. This is Jesus' voice. Jesus is the one here calling her, calling Zion to call her own out of the world. If you're used to a red-letter Bible, why not underline these words in red, too, as a reminder that Jesus speaks throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. Jesus issues four urgent commands in verses 10 and 11. Two of these are made especially urgent, especially intense, by repetition. Pass through. Pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. There's the first two commands. Now, I know that there are more than two verbs in these first two commands. But as well as repeating himself, Jesus, speaking through Isaiah, also emphasizes his commands by expanding them, by making the commands bigger, making them more imposing, harder to miss or ignore. Each command is a complex. The repeated direction. The repeated direction plus a second verb that works together with the first. Well, the next two commands are a little more straightforward. They each only have one verb. Raise a banner for the nations. Now, this command is obviously connected to the one before it. But because it resounds with echoes of earlier parts of the book, it also stands on its own. The last command is simply... Say, say to the daughter of Zion. The connection to preaching, to heralding the gospel message should be obvious. Well, if you're looking at your Bibles, you might be wondering to yourself about the other verb you see there, especially if you have an NIV pew Bible from, that you pulled from the rack in front of you. You might be wondering about this word, see, and it's definitely an important word. But ironically, this translation in our pew Bibles doesn't help us to see why. The word we have translated here as see is, I think, translated better in versions that keep the more old-fashioned sounding, behold. Which, although it technically means the same thing, has a very different function. When you read the word behold in the Bible, it's almost always a word that a speaker would use to draw the attention. Hine. Hine is the word in Hebrew. It's supposed to grab you. Behold bends your ear to what comes after it. It's kind of like the English word, hey! Like a kid I heard yelling to his parents a couple of days ago, hey, I just saw a bald eagle! In the same kind of way, behold tells you 
that the speaker thinks what he's about to say is unusual and unexpected and even amazing. Behold is like an exclamation mark or all caps or an emoji. But it's something that you hear, not something that you see or read. So where the NIV uses see, it's this exclamation, this excited, hey! But unfortunately, the NIV only includes, it only includes the weird word see two times. But in Hebrew, there are three hines, three beholds, three hey, hey, hey's. And the hey that's missing is actually the very first one. It should come right at the beginning of verse 11. So, as you can see, although the command to say something is only stated one time, it's like there are three big exclamation marks that surround it and punctuate who is commanding us to speak as well as the content of our message. These four commands, pass through and prepare, build up and remove raise and say are what I'm calling the work of the gospel to make pure to make plain to make clear and to make known now I may need to explain this a little the idea that there is such a thing as the work of the gospel may not sit quite well with you Because we're right to think of the gospel in terms of words, words of God's grace spoken over us rather than works, things that we do. We're right to think that way. We can do nothing to earn God's favor. The gospel is what God pronounces about us. The gospel is what God works in us without our ever deserving it. Nevertheless, through his words, God, by his spirit, will change you. The outworking of his words of grace will be seen in your conduct, in the things that you do. You can't avoid it. As Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Through the gospel, God brings you from one state to another, from the dominion of darkness, he says in Colossians chapter 1, into the kingdom of his beloved son. So if what you do, if what you desire, if the way you want to live, if your hope has not been transformed by the gospel, then you cannot have experienced the power of God working in you. It's impossible. God has not laid hold of you. You have not actually accepted the gospel of grace. The work of the gospel that I'm talking about then is work that comes as a result of God's grace in us. It is work that thanks God, not work that demands something of God. It's a work of love, not a work of duty. It's a blessing, not a chore. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. 
And if we do not do this work of love, this work of the gospel, the words we use to share the gospel will tend to fall flat. Because those who hear us will rightly perceive that we do not understand what they mean. That we do not live out what they imply, what they demand. Pass through. Pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. This is, as I said, to make pure. This is the work of holiness. The context makes clear that the gates that Jesus is commanding us to pass through are the gates of the temple. But he doesn't tell us which direction we're supposed to pass through. Do you notice that? Are we going into the temple? Or are we coming out? The answer is yes. Both. The second part of the command to prepare the way should make us think of that more famous passage from Isaiah 40 that we associate with John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now remember what his message was? His message was a message of repentance. Repentance. But also, if you remember chapter 60, I don't know, it was a while back, we learned, but you can see it on your page, we learned that the gates of Zion are called praise. Repentance and praise. And likewise, we heard at the beginning of today's service that we enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts and his courts with praise. We pass through the gates to worship in God's presence. We come in repentance, knowing our unworthiness to be there. But at the altar, we know that we will find atonement. We will find forgiveness for our sins. We boldly approach the throne of grace. So we pass through the gates with thanksgiving and adoration for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. But since we ourselves as the church and in our own bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit we can pass back out to live and to serve those outside the temple and yet remain in God's presence. Christ is the gate. And we live our lives in his midst, in the midst of the gate, in Christ, constantly passing through him that we may be God's holy people. Now, whereas John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord, that is, for Jesus to come for the first time, Jesus here calls us to prepare the way for the people. Prepare the way for the people. Notice that this is a people that is not an individual. 
In Christ, you belong to a people. You are not your own person. The church is a gathering, a community of called out ones. Though the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us, the Spirit calls out to himself in other Christians. As James says, the Spirit envies intensely. He makes us want to be holy and set apart alongside others who share his Spirit. So if you're perfectly comfortable living a so-called Christian life in splendid isolation... You have to ask yourself the question of whether the Spirit actually lives in you. Now, some, of course, live in special or painful circumstances, and there are good reasons why it is difficult for them to come together with God's people. But such cases, such Christians, find this a heavy burden to bear, and not something that is desirable. If you have no yearning at all to gather with God's people, you need to ask yourself some hard questions. So we're to pass back and forth through the gates of the temple, preparing the way for the people. That temple, that people, includes us. We prepare the way by preparing ourselves, by preparing our church for him. We must live in the holiness that we find in Christ if we want to make the way plain for others. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. This is Jesus' command for us to make plain the way for all those who do not know him, to make it simple for them to come to Zion, his city, to find their home in Jesus. The command has both a positive and a negative aspect, to build up and to remove. When we work on a road, if you've driven out to Kenora, you maybe have seen this lately, you see both these things happening. We build up pathways that have broken down. And we clear away rubble in order to start construction on new roads. In the work of the gospel, both actions are essential, and it is back-breaking labor. There are many old paths that have broken down. Many of our lost friends will know something of the Bible or of attending church. Some of them may even attend church now. That's what it is to live in a post-Christian society. And some of them may even be here in the room. Jesus said that that is what it is to live in the church, in the fallen world. If you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, many of these people will have obviously bizarre ideas about Jesus or weird hang-ups about the church. Others will be able to give you chapter and verse and quote great theologians ad nauseum. But the craters and potholes must be and can be repaired by God's grace. In some ways, 
this building up of broken roads is the more treacherous work. Because when people know how to sound spiritual, it's easy to assume that they have a better understanding than they actually do. The road may look solid, but it can sometimes collapse without warning. On the other hand, an increasing number of our friends know absolutely nothing about the Lord. That work is quite different. The removing of stones, the clearing away of rubble, is harder up front because you're starting from from less than scratch. You have to work hard to correct misunderstandings, to take biases and other barriers into account. You have to gather all the material up, tell the basic stories, teach simple concepts, and slowly and painstakingly build a vocabulary of truth. But if you build carefully and lay a good foundation over the long term, the road will be stable. No one can lay any foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, shortly after he told them that he had resolved to know nothing among them, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, if you think that sounds simplistic, that you can't possibly believe that this is the whole story, consider what Paul himself tells us about how he felt when he chose this basic approach. He says, and you can check this out later, In chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my teaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, by this power, he was not talking about some spectacular sign of healing or tongues or prophecy. He was referring to the greatest miracle of all, the miracle that only the Spirit of God can achieve, and that is the changing of a heart hardened against God. The bringing of a soul from death to life. This demonstration of the Spirit's power is an essential component of true faith in Christ. It might not look like anything from the outside, at least not at first. But when you're in the midst of a deep crisis, looking back on that transformation that you know happened, can often be the only evidence that you have that you're not going crazy. That you were not tricked, that you were not bribed into becoming a follower of Jesus. And our brother Luke gave powerful testimony to this in that Gospel Coalition podcast that I mentioned earlier. When he had been in prison for weeks, Sometimes in solitary confinement and physically tortured, he knew he could make it all go away if he just denied Jesus. I'll carry on with the story from the podcast. 
One day I said, I'm going to just get out of here. I was worried about my family, about my girls. So I was going to go and tell the guards. But then I was kind of reviewing back to what happened to my life. How did I become a Christian? Maybe they're right. Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe, maybe it's not the truth. Luke went back and reviewed everything in his mind. He had gone looking for God. He had asked to read the Bible. He had decided to follow Jesus. In all this, he had been called and directed by the Holy Spirit. He hadn't been persuaded by anybody else. As he said, nobody persuaded me. And I'm not persuaded because of anything. This is not giving me asylum. This is not giving me any monetary benefits. Nothing. So I know myself that I did not make this decision based on those things. The podcast goes on. Luke signed a confession written by his captors. It said he had left Islam and converted to Christianity. He was proud of that decision and he didn't regret it. It helped Luke settle into the peace of God's presence. He shared the gospel with the guys around him. He was about to die, so why not? With every moment that God was with him, he grew more and more confident in his faith. This work of the gospel, the building up and the removing of stones, is unpredictable. It can even be hazardous. That's because people, even people here in Canada, are hardwired to hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Especially when we keep it plain, simply Jesus Christ and him crucified. As Paul says, it's a stumbling block and foolishness. Because we pity the simple-minded who can believe such a thing. And we're uncomfortable with the idea of grace. We don't like feeling so undignified. Like we're entirely at someone else's mercy. We're too proud to be like blind baby birds perched on a nest with our mouths hanging open, waiting for whatever worm God may bring us. We want to see and assess the situation for ourselves. Well, here in Winnipeg, we may not face prison time or death as we lift high the name of Christ. But we will certainly face mockery. And in a society that's becoming less and less tolerant of Christian faith, our job prospects are becoming thinner. We will face disbelief and scorn from family members and even fellow Christians when we tell them that we are going to rely on a message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We will meet misunderstanding and contempt when we resist the worldly marketing and cultural forms that most of the evangelical world has embraced. 
making the way plain, insisting on knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified means accepting that most people, even many in the church, will respond to us with blank stares or condescending smiles with pursed lips and rolled eyes. And that's if we're lucky. Take your Bibles and turn with me for a second to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to see what removing the obstacles, that's page 1122. We're going to read there what what removing the obstacles, what making the way simple and plain, this strategy that the Apostle Paul espoused, looked like for him in practice. Page 1122, chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 3. Paul says, like Isaiah, or Jesus through Isaiah, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness, in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Well, making the gospel clear and making it known are the final two commands that we have in these verses. Making the gospel clear, making it known. And I'm going to deal with them together because, in a way, they refer to the same thing. Think of a flag raised high. A flash of color drawing along a great host. It's a striking image. And it's one of Isaiah's favorites. He uses it nine times, far more than anyone else in Scripture. This is what I meant about the echoes of the image of a banner making this last sentence in verse 10 stand out. 
Now, it's interesting that most of the time, in Isaiah at least, it's not the armies that raise their banner, which would be the common way, but God himself who sends to them his signal. A lot of the time, this flag image is Isaiah's way of picturing how God sends a message to a nation that he is using as his instrument of divine wrath, that the time has come for them to execute his judgment. So for Isaiah, a flag is usually not a literal flag. The nations don't know that they're being used by God. They think that they're making up their own minds, that the timing is perfect, that their enemies are ripe for the picking. But Isaiah knows better. We know better. Right? This picture of a flag from Isaiah's mind helps us imagine how God oversees and governs the course of human events. Other times it's God raising the banner, but this banner is a banner that he uses to call his people, calling the exiles, calling the nations to come to Zion in peace and prosperity. Again, when God raises this banner, it's not a literal flag. The people come to him on their own, but they're drawn for reasons that they don't completely understand. What's the significance of this banner? Isaiah tells us in chapter 11, after a more well-known passage that starts, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. And then in verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's. The nations will rally to him. And then in verse 12, the Lord will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. Jesus, the root of Jesse, is himself the banner that God raises up to rescue and rally the nations around him. And who gathers, they gather the exiles of Israel. The nations gather the exiles of Israel. Now, our verse in chapter 62 is the last time in the book that this image is used. But now it's the people of God who are commanded to raise a banner for the nations. We, the citizens of Zion, are commanded to lift up Christ. We are to lift up Christ in our hearts, passing in and out of the gates of the temple. We are to lift up Christ in our activities, building up and clearing away the pathways. And as we do that, we are to lift up Christ in everything that we say. We are to be pure. We are to make the way plain. We are to make the message clear. And we are to make Christ known. Behold, Jesus says, the Lord has made a proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say, we are to speak, God commands it. We are to use words. We are not to shrink from preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified because, behold, he is the Savior who comes, who is coming, who has come. 
And as we live and do and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, the next behold becomes manifest. Behold, his reward is with him. His reward is with him? The last thing we expected comes about. Not only are we saved from darkness and confusion and eternal destruction, in him, with him, all our needs, even the ones we didn't know we had, are met. With him, all our longings become deeper and more deeply satisfied. All our hurts are healed. Behold, his reward is with him. It's one of the last things Jesus says in the Bible. Behold, my reward is with me. He himself is our reward, and we are all the reward he wants. He is our captain, and we are his willing captives. We follow him as the object of our desire, and he captivates us as the objects of his love. John Wesley put all this very well in a hymn that I've found very meaningful lately. He prays, O grant that nothing in my soul may dwell save Thy pure love alone. O may thy love possess me whole, my joy, my treasure, and my crown, my health, my light, my life, my crown, my portion, and my treasure thou. Oh, take me, seal me for thine own, To thee alone, my soul, I bow. What in thy love possess I not? My star by night, my sun by day, my spring of life when parched with drought, my wine to cheer, my bread to stay, my strength, my shield, my safe abode. My robe before the throne of God. In suffering, be thy love my peace. In weakness, be thy love my power. And when the storms of life shall cease, Jesu, in that important hour, in death as life, be thou my guide. And save me who for me hast died. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, prisoners for the Lord, living a life worthy of his calling, completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men, preparing his people for works 
of service so that the body of Christ, so that the city of God, you could say, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, may we bathe in you and in you crucified. May we not be ashamed of your blood. May we not be ashamed of your gospel, of grace, so that we add on pieces that are more acceptable to the world around us. Forgive us, dear Lord, for cowardice, for not preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, for not trusting you enough to keep your promises. Lord God, as we celebrate our new friends, really we are celebrating you, your faithfulness to them and to us for bringing us to this place. We ask that we would find our reward, our joy, our treasure, our crown, our meat, our bread, our wine, our delight, everything that we need, everything that we desire, may we find in Jesus. And we ask it all in your name. Amen.